Welcome to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Association for Undergraduate Education at Research Universities, abbreviated as URU, to emphasize the U-E-R-U part of our name. URU is a Boyer-inspired national consortium of 115 U.S. research universities dedicated in the language of URU-sponsored Boyer 2030 report to equity and excellence in research university undergraduate education. And we're your hosts, Steve Dandino, the executive director, and Emma Hansen, one of our URU undergraduate student coordinators and senior in political science here at Colorado State University. And we welcome you to Reinventing You from Fort Collins, Colorado, which is the uh, CSU, which is the host of URU. And today's guest is Dr. Corbin Campbell, Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and Associate Professor in the School of Education at American University. Dr. Campbell's research funded by the Spencer Foundation and the National Academy of Education examines three interrelated streams, college teaching in diverse institutional contexts, assessments of higher education quality, and the organizational environments that support faculty in thriving in their careers. We invited Corbin to talk with us at this moment because she is the author of the exciting new 2023 book, Great College Teaching, Where It Happens and How to Foster It Everywhere, published by Harvard Education Press. More on that momentarily, but please know that Dr. Campbell previously served as Associate Professor in the Higher and Post-Secondary Education Program at Teachers College, Columbia University, and her research has been published in the Journal of Higher Education, Research in Higher Education, Review of Higher Education, and Teachers College Recording, among others. Dr. Campbell's work has been h- highlighted in news venues such as Insider, Inside Higher Education, The Wall Street Journal, NPR, and The New York Times. And she has served on editorial boards, including Review of Higher Education and Review of Educational Research. In 2015, Dr. Campbell was awarded the National Academy of Education Spencer Postdoctoral Fellowship. She has also served on a committee of the National Academies to assess interpersonal and intrapersonal competencies in college and committee of the National Center for Education Statistics. Revising the National Postsecondary Sample Surveys, Dr. Campbell received her PhD in education policy from the University of Maryland, her MA in higher education and student affairs from The Ohio State University, and her BA in psychology from the University of Virginia. Welcome, Dr. Corbin. Thank you so much. It's it's a pleasure to join you today, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. And of course, I can't imagine a better topic to discuss on this podcast than the topic of college teaching at research universities and how that supports undergraduate education. So it's great to be here. That's for sure, Corbin. We're really grateful for your time today. Thanks for taking the time uh, to talk with us. And thank you also for your presentation last fall at uh, URU's National Conference. That was awfully kind of you to come and share about the book, uh, even as it was uh, sort of in the process of being printed and published uh, for the public. That was my pleasure. And um, it's so exciting to be talking about this book at the same time that the Boyer Report and Commission has come out with their findings. And there's just so much. um, And the Carnegie classification system is, you know, being reconsidered. And there just seems like there's so much confluence of efforts together that could really shift higher education toward equity and excellence um, and and support teaching improvement on a scale that we haven't seen in a century. Um, Steve has called your new book timely and indispensable, according to a blurb I saw on the Harvard Education Press website. Um, How is he right? Well, first of all, Steve, many thanks, um, you know, for for this this, uh, wonderful idea about the book. And um, and I I do have to say that when when uh, I was doing this research, um, you know, over the past 10 years, uh, the beginning times of this research was a really different moment in time that where, than where we are right now. Um, and, and you know, historically, as, as you all probably know very well, higher ed institutions are have been slow to change and faculty have been slow to change. And 
Um, yet we are in this time and space where during COVID-19, um, faculty had to instantaneously uh, change their practices. And because of that, so many faculty perspectives and so many administrator perspectives have shifted about the opportunity for change in teaching and what can happen um, in, in, a, in a broad scale way in a briefer period of time. And so I think this really offer, you know, gives the opportunity for us to think about not just, you know, what could be done during a pandemic, but what could be done for other urgent needs in higher education. So when we think about the equity imperative and the fact that without these changes and improvements in college teaching, we are really underserving students and especially students of color and other uh, first-gen students, students from low-income backgrounds, for example, other students that really could benefit from these teaching improvement initiatives um, that really benefit all students, but especially benefit the students that need it most I think we really are in a time and space where we could capitalize on these needs in a whole new way. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Corbin, about that. Uh, that sense of uh, the pandemic has opened people's uh, minds and hearts and, uh, you know, caused them to be poised to enact changes that we've known about. Well, enact uh, new methods of teaching and new ways of sort of interacting with students and creating a student experience that we've known about a long time. And you've been, like you just said, you've been working on this for 10 years, this particular project. Uh, but now folks are embracing it in ways that we just haven't seen before. And that's awfully exciting. And we need to, I suppose, work together like you're describing or implying to uh, take advantage of this opportunity since it's uh, been a long time coming and uh, the needs have been built up over all that period of time. Uh, uh, how are you feeling about what you're seeing in terms of just the reception of your book right now? Are you getting people who are enthused about it and are embracing its message? You know, Steve, I have to say um, it's 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 been exciting. It's really been an exciting time to to bring this book out and just the number of institutions and and actually, you know, uh, the centers for teaching and learning on on university campuses are. I think really excited about thinking about the role they could play in this movement. And, um, and so there've been, you know, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of book talks in, in very different kinds of universities, you know, at, at uh, large research universities like Stanford and Northwestern, um, and then other kinds of universities that, that are, you know, more liberal arts focused or, um, uh, or regional comprehensive universities or, or state flagship systems, right? So it's really been exciting to, um, you know, to, to see this book be received on different kinds of campuses. And I think that's one of the reasons I was excited to put this book out there because teaching improvement in different university contexts looks really different, right? And so being able to talk about teaching improvement work at a small liberal arts college will look really different than talking about teaching improvement work at a large research university and one that's private or one that's state, you know, a state, a state public. So, um, so it's been excited to, exciting to think about this. And I think similarly, um, there, there's, there's more, so th that's talking about how the book is received on individual campuses, but it's also been received, you know, I feel like there's this broader teaching improvement movement that is happening nationally. And so whether that's, uh, you know, been been instigated by the, you know, the Boyer Report, Boyer Commission, as you all have been talking about, um, or that's, you know, talking about what's been going on um, with uh, AQ and 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 their work and 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 thinking about the new Carnegie classification system. And, you know, could we think about uh, you know, a T1, a T2 instead of an R1 and an R2 or not instead of, but in addition to, you know, really thinking about how, how teaching improvement and demonstrating teaching excellence could be seen on a national scale. All of that is really exciting and coming together in terms of how this book has been received. Yeah, those two universities you mentioned by name have great leadership uh, in this area. And so I'm not surprised they were eager to, to uh, embrace your work right up front. Um, and um, it occurs to me that, you know, Boyer 2030 co-chair Barbara Snyder, the president of AAU, is a, such a champion for seeing research universities, particularly her members, but others, 
uh, 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 prioritize teaching and teaching, uh, inclusive teaching and research informed teaching in ways that maybe we've never seen AAU uh, leadership uh, articulate before, strong, consistent message. And, and I've been privileged to see the reception of that message on the other side. Provost say uh, the Big Ten schools meeting with her and Peter McPherson just last week, how receptive they are to that idea. That's their idea too, you know? And so I think you're right. We're kind of meeting this moment where people are uh, from all different positions of responsibility and perspective uh, have the same idea, which is it's time to, to do the right thing and to benefit from all the knowledge that we've accumulated about how best to move forward in this area. And that also, you know, I want to kind of dovetail or transition a little bit to discussion of your research approach in this book, because one of the things that really stands out and that people always remark upon, in my experience and in discussing it with others, is how you've you've very uh, carefully and intentionally considered the different institutional contexts that exist in higher education. Well, you know, we're not all the same kinds of universities or same kinds of institutions, and your book attends to the different contexts very carefully in it uh, and, and discusses sort of the meaning of, of teaching in each context and such. Could you maybe say a little bit about, for, for our audience, uh, for listeners who haven't perhaps yet read the book or aren't familiar with it, kind of how it lays out and how your research uh, was initially conceived and carried out over, over the course of these this past decade, as you describe it? Yeah, absolutely. The um... Well, the empirical foundation for the book um, uh, drives from more than 700 observed courses across disciplines and across nine universities. Um, and in, in addition to observing these courses, we also surveyed students and surveyed faculty, as well as examined syllabi to really get an in-depth understanding of these courses. And I have to say, you know, the original impetus for this research was that we know a great deal about what great college teaching is, right? And we've known this for a really long time. I mean, we have a century of research on college teaching and college teaching improvement. Um, so, but, but we don't know as much about where great college teaching is happening and why, right? So we have less understanding. And part of this is because a lot of the good research on college teaching has been done in specific settings, right? So observations, you know, in one discipline, in one institution, or um, we've seen experimental studies, right? In um, But typically, you know, situated in one institution, in one discipline. And there's been less of this, you know, broad scale view. And I was really curious, right? We, we you know, where is the great college teaching happening? Can, you know, can we see it in different disciplines? Can we see it in different kinds of institutions? And the other thing I was really interested in is, you know, what are the broad trends, but also where are the courses that are bucking those trends, right? So, you know, one great example of this is as I've done this, uh, this work, this research, I often come across people who say a lot of, we can't, right? So here's, here's just an example of this, you know, we can't do culturally responsive teaching in, you know, in science you know, in a research university, right? And and so what's interesting is a lot of these we can'ts are, are speaking to the trends. So for example, you know, we do find less focus on students' prior knowledge and their lived experiences in the sciences than we do in, in other disciplines. But that doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. So so it's not impossible. We really need to lift up the, let's say, 10 percent of courses that we observe that are doing that in those disciplines that are unusual. And similarly, we need to really, you know, really bust those myths that it can't happen and lift up how it can happen and where it is happening and why it's happening in those spaces. Um, so that that was really exciting. I think one other impetus for this book was that there's this really interesting dynamic around prestige in higher education where, where often the metrics that are associated with prestige are 
are those metrics that that actually might pull away from teaching in some respects. So, uh, you know, stronger focus on research, stronger uh, uh, stronger resources being devoted to marketing, for example. Um, and 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 this, you know, I think this is especially interesting for this group that your organization focuses on, which is research universities. And at the same time, these universities are typically, you know, they have stronger resources. They often have faculty and students that have stronger credentials, at least on most of the more traditional metrics, right? And so I was really wondering, given this interesting context where there's both this push and pull in research universities, would we find better teaching in those spaces in the highly ranked research universities, or would we have find the better teaching in broad access institutions that, you know, often hire more for teachers and have more emphasis on teaching and in tenure and promotion discussions. I really wasn't sure. And so we set out with these nine universities, they're really diverse contexts. So some very highly ranked universities that were private, you know, public flagship universities and highly ranked liberal arts colleges and others that were broad access. Um, uh, broad access public and broad access liberal arts institutions that were unranked or lower ranked and basically to seek, you know, where is the great college teaching happening and why? Um, and, you know, you may not want to tell the answer. So people have to buy the book to find out that's, <laughs> that could be, but before we maybe get to that, you know, kind of the findings and, and, and what you did um, discover through that very interesting uh, methodology. Uh, would you say something about the conceptual framework? I'm a social theorist by uh, training, if you will, uh, and um, I always, always kind of think. Yeah, everyone talks about methods all the time, but I think the conceptual ideas behind a work, the theorists, your intellectual heroes, if you will, uh, are really important to understand. You know, to appreciate and help um, guide understanding of the research methodology and of your ultimate goals. You know. And, the meaning, the significance of the findings and the like. Can you say a little bit about that? Like, you know, if if it's germane in your mind uh, to, to what you're doing? Absolutely, Steve. And I think what, what you're asking is so important because the truth is that observing teaching excellence is extremely challenging. And the observation of teaching excellence partly is conceptual and it's also methodological. So let's let's talk, we'll start on the uh, conceptual piece. Um, and, uh, and, and so defining teaching excellence is, is certainly not easy. Um, and, and what I'll say is that although there's been a hundred years of research on what good college teaching is, it continues to evolve, right? And also I want to mention that I feel like K-12 is even further than we are in terms of understanding teach, teaching excellence. So, so, so. I did borrow uh, both from the higher ed literature base about what we know about great college teaching specifically, but also some K-12 understandings about how people learn and what we know um, about uh, the learning sciences, for example, and culturally relevant teaching and culturally responsive teaching, which all really grew out of that K-12 literature base. Um, but, but in the end, uh, what I decided was that to be included in the observational rubric, it needed to be a construct that, that was associated with student learning. So basically an aspect of teaching quality that had been demonstrated to be associated with, with improved student learning outcomes and that it was demonstrated to be so in higher ed. So, and let me tell give you some examples of these constructs. So uh, one that I think many will be familiar with and has been, you know, uh, there have been many meta-analyses demonstrating the importance of this is active learning. So we know that using active learning techniques to engage students more deeply has been shown to improve student learning. And that's for all students, but particularly the, you know, focused students who have been uh, traditionally marginalized in higher education. And so, um, but also uh, the, the depth of subject matter knowledge as it pertains to ped pedagogical courses. So this comes out of K-12, but has been also applied to higher education. So for example, uh, pedagogical content knowledge. So we know that just knowing biology 
is not the same as knowing how to teach biology, right? So faculty who understand biology is one thing, but faculty who understand what are the core ideas of biology? How do we sequence those core ideas for student understanding and learning? How do we help students to map the discipline and map those core ideas to an understanding of the field of biology, right? That's a really different thing. And so we looked at um, we looked at pedagogical content knowledge. We also looked at the degree to which an instructor made connections between that subject matter knowledge and students' lived experience. So understanding their prior knowledge and, and using culturally relevant practices so that that subject matter knowledge could really connect to students and their lives and understandings and assumptions. All of that um, has been really shown to improve student learning. And um, and I think another piece that often gets missed in the literature base, but is really important conceptually to this particular study, is that faculty members who are doing well with lifting up students' prior knowledge and also doing well with the depth of that subject matter knowledge need to support students who might have dissonance between their prior knowledge and that new learning. And they need to do that both cognitively, right? So help drawing those cognitive bridges between the prior knowledge and the new subject matter ideas, but also emotionally. And I'll just say an example of this, you know, as somebody who's taught research methods and statistics in the, in the past, um, you know, part of it is teaching the subject matter knowledge and, and, and knowing how to map, you know, understandings and, you know, applying that to the field. But part of that is simply helping students get over their nervousness and anxiety around research and math. And, uh, and, and, and so the, the emotional aspects of that learning process are so critical. So, so that's another example. And, and all of that supports a positive classroom climate, right? So we examined the classroom climate as well, knowing that that's really important to students' learning process. So those are just some examples of the kinds of conceptual backings um, that that really were were supporting this study. I almost interrupted you with an amen. <laughs> uh, you know, it's so great. So Emma, I've been like a typical. So, uh, Dr. Campbell, I had asked you earlier about the possibility of your naming your intellectual heroes and some of the, the kind of uh, important figures in this field that we ought to acknowledge when we you know, talking about leading edge research like your own. Would you like to, would you care to name any of those folks uh, that have been important to you and your work? Absolutely. So when I just talked about that conceptual framing, I feel like there are so many scholars doing important work in this field. And if anybody is looking for, you know, uh, some good reading, uh, you know, in this area that would give a good backbone of those conceptual works that I just described, um, the National Academies have put out a couple of publications that that summarize the learning sciences, so how people learn, and then there was a follow-up edition on how people learn too. Um, Bransford and others, uh, Lord, uh, we have, uh, of course, Gloria Ladson-Billings, you know, who I think is foundational in the culturally responsive uh, learning field. Um, in, in, and both of those really focus more on the K-12 learning sciences, but there have been one, wonderful scholars doing translational work to bring that into higher education. Anna Newman is a great example of that. And I think some others that have been doing work specifically focusing on racial equity in teaching and learning pro processes, Frank Tuitt, Estella Ben-Simone, um, and then from the disciplines, we have Carl Wyman, you know, who's, who's done really important work in this area. Um, John Braxton, who's connected it to student retention. So I know a lot of folks on, in this call will be interested in how all of this connects to retention. He's done some really important work there. And then there are some, some up and coming scholars who, who have been, you know, doing the more recent work. And I would say, you know, to take a look at Milagros Castillo Montoya's work, Brian McGowan's work. Um, in the fields of higher ed and, and, and looking at culturally responsive and equity-based learning. Brian Dewsbury, uh, who's looked specifically in biology. So I think we need to balance these broader pedagogical with some of the disciplinary approaches. 
And um, and one more who's just recently on the scene, who's been thinking about how this works in courseware and in in online teaching and learning contexts, Ariel Rogers. So so there's I think you know what you emphasized earlier, which is that it's not just this book, but how this book fits into um, a mosaic of work that is moving this forward is really important. I agree with you, Corbin, and I think um, it's great to emphasize some of the natural scientists, like you just did biology, physics, and so on, who are doing really remarkable work. And people who are familiar with this world know that, but those who are maybe not might be surprised at how um, thoughtful and leading edge uh, our colleagues in the natural sciences, engineering, math, and so forth, have been in the forefront. And then you also, you you acknowledge the National Academy's important role in, in all of this. And I'm aware, and you probably are as well, that they continue to uh, invest in this work and that, um, uh, you know, has great benefit uh, for, for all of us, whether we're in STEM or, or in other areas of the university or college life. So, so kudos to all those great folks you mentioned. And, uh, and we know there are many more as well, but thanks for mentioning those that you have. And I was, I was, uh, you know, self-conscious about talking all the time. And so I wanted to bring Emma back into this conversation to uh, we're benefit from having an undergraduate student joining in this conversation. I'm hoping Emma, you can ask a few questions. Also, you know, if something comes to mind, like we're, we're you know, here, Dr. Campbell and I are chatting back and forth, and your your experience suggests something different, or or at least a question about what we're saying. I'm please offer for you to to jump in on that. <laughs> Absolutely, I won't. I won't put you on the spot, but uh, definitely. Um... You're mentioning things that are have pertained to my education as an undergrad, so it's really awesome to hear uh, what you're doing. Uh, a book like yours is meant to be put into action. Um, so, how are you hoping to facilitate the adoption of leading edge practices in teaching and learning? And what do you think has been missing in these efforts? That's a great question. And I, I really do hope that a book like this is focused on change, um, actionable change. And, um, and actually that's the way the book is, is, is set up. So, um, the book is really each chapter talks about a different kind of institutional type. So that what I would hope is an administrator could take that chapter and some of the other chapters that set the broader tone and talk about the broader landscape and really you know, there's recommendations for each specific type of institution, because I think one of the things that has been missing to teaching improvement efforts in higher education is the idea that each institution looks so different in how they're going to need to do these improvement efforts. And so the book talks about individual faculty improvement, collegial level of support for faculty improvement. When I say the collegial level, I'm looking at faculty to faculty interaction. I'm looking at governance processes and some of those other processes. And then organizational and institutional levers for change. So for example, you know, and in a research university, what are the organizational policies and practices that need to change? And then how do we foster faculty to faculty conversation about teaching improvement? And then what do we do for individual faculty change? What can we do with each individual faculty member that will, will help their improvement? So the book really speaks to all three of those levels of change. Um, and, and I will say that uh, this, this is, you know, Steve, you were saying, maybe we don't want to give away everything that's in the book, but one, one, of the, one of the insights that I will lift up is that for research universities in particular, that collegial level seems to have a great impact. So that faculty to faculty normative area for teaching improvement is so key. That's really been a missing ingredient, I think, in so many, you know, there's so many teaching improvement efforts that I, that I think about that are focusing on, let's bring the individual faculty that need to change to this workshop, or what do we need to do to change, you know, the guidelines, but there's less focus on, you know, what can we do in a, in a faculty meeting? What can we do in a department meeting? You know, how do we get faculty talking about teaching in the hallways? So that's where I really hope this book will help improve, you know, improve teaching on the ground in institutions. Well, me and Emma are both social scientists. So we're also amen on that, you know, the focus on the normative and so important. I absolutely agree with you. Cultural 
uh, phenomena as much as it is an institutional and structural uh, phenomena when it comes to change on the scale we're talking about. You know, and it kind of another sort of dimension of all this is our own biographies and how we ex- how we've come to understand the meaning of higher education. And I, I don't think it's a criticism at all to just observe that folks like ourselves, uh, you know, rely to some extent on our own undergraduate experience. You know, it's, it's a touchstone. It's a basis for our thinking um, because it's so primary in a way, you know, it kind of forms that set of assumptions. Uh, and I, I uh, as Emma noted in, our, in the introduction, you were an undergraduate in psychology at in Charlottesville at the University of Virginia, you know, does it, do you take from that experience being at UVA, anything that kind of informs how you, how, why you care about this subject, how, what, you know, what motivates you, how you, how you basically um, construe it in ways uh, as a researcher now, years later? See, this is a wonderful question. And actually, in so many of my book talks, this is a little bit where I start because So many faculty learn how to teach by the people who taught them in the disciplines that they teach, and they often end up in the same kind of institution that they teach in, right? So so there's this sense that we are so limited by our contexts, right? Um, And and, and, and in in my book talks, I often ask people to think about, you know, when have you had a chance to observe teaching in a different discipline or in a different kind of university, a different institutional type, or observe teaching that's happening with students that are different from the students that you teach. And and the truth is so many faculty never had that experience. And and I will say before I did, before I went on this observational journey, this was the case for me as well. You know, as you read in my background, I went to public research universities from my undergrad all the way through my doctorate, right? At Virginia, at Ohio State, and then at Maryland. And then after that, I went to teach in a my in in a in a private research university. So all of these were R1 institutions. And um and I'll say that I felt now, actually, now that I've done this, you know, been observing and had the chance to observe more than 700 courses in totally different kinds of universities and totally different kinds of disciplines, I, I feel like my my um, my eyes have been open to the possibility of college teaching in totally new ways. And um, I just got this this broader view, this totally zoomed out perspective. And, you know, this is one of the reasons that I think our course evaluation process is tough, because we're asking students to rate courses, and they've only seen a small window of what's possible in college teaching. And this goes actually back to the methodological issues um, with, you know, how do we observe what college teaching, or how do we measure what college teaching excellence is? And what's interesting is the students and the faculty and the observers all rated the same course, right? So we have these observers that have been trained, you know, over 30 hours about how to observe great college teaching. And we've shown them what's possible, you know, what what is the best culturally relevant teaching look like? And then these students who've had a very small window of what's possible in college teaching and same with faculty who have this very small window. And what we basically find when we compare these measurements is that the faculty rate themselves the very highest. The students, believe it or not, rate pretty close to the faculty. And then our observers rate about 30% lower than both the faculty and the student ratings. And I think this is dealing with the question that you have at hand, which is that for many of us, we only know what great college teaching might be by those who taught us and by those who are, you know, very close to what we, what we do. And, but great college teaching has so much more possibilities than that. And, um, and so I, you know, one of the, one of the things I suggest for faculty is however great they think they are, and this, this applies to myself as well in college teaching, just imagine that the, you know, the, the actual, you know, the actual level of their excellence is about 30% lower (laughs) than what they think. 
Um, so, so yeah, I think that applies to myself for me. And I, I totally changed the way that I teach after having gone through this observational study. Oh, uh, so here's my next question. It's to Emma. So how does this land with you, Emma? You're just coming at the end of a four-year, you know, university experience. You've filled out some teaching evaluations, I'm guessing, over those four years, you know. So Dr. Campbell Absolutely. just said that you don't know, all you know is the teachers you've had, you know, and uh, that's your context for comparison, right? Uh, you've not been at another university other than Colorado State University, correct? No, I have not. So that's your so that's your context, right? And you've not observed um, college teaching all around the country or at other schools, <laughs> right? Correct? Oh, I wish, but no. You wish, yeah. <laughs> so, so how does it now that we kind of pointed out this obvious fact, right? Uh, and and by the way, we're not, you know, the professors is, are in the same boat as Professor <laughs> saying. So does this make you? How does this make you feel about you know evaluating your your faculty and filling out those forms and all that sort of business? I mean, it totally makes sense. I'm being a political science major. I don't really get to see a lot of what the faculty in, you know, other uh, majors or colleges teach or how they teach or really what they teach. So it makes sense how I would maybe rate my professor higher than maybe another area. So that's that's pretty interesting or even areas that I think I'm more interested in versus some of my classmates in the class I might rate, you know, a professor higher than they might. So that's also really interesting that you point that yeah. out because I, I didn't really even think about yeah. that. We don't recommend you tell them they're 30% not as good as they think they are, though. I think we'll hold that, into a, we'll hold that in advance for another time. You don't oh, need to tell yeah, them that. For sure, anonymously. <laughs> <laughs> Um, wow. Yeah. Well, if you were the ruler of the world for a day, what are some characteristics of U.S. higher ed that you would change um, and how would you change them? So I love this question. <laughs> because, you know, first of all, let me just note that I don't think any rulers of the day could instantaneously <laughs> change higher education. It's one of the reasons that I'm in higher ed, right? Because we change through um, we change through collegial processes that are consensus building, right? So we don't have, you know, there, there's no ruler of the day that could make this change. But nevertheless, I think it is really important for us to think about, you know, what are the goals, right? What are we really after? And and then to think about what would be the change processes that would make that take place. So, so let me tell you, if I, if I, if I was ruler for the day and instantaneously had the ability to make these changes. Um, so I would say, first of all, first of all, I would instantly make higher education pedagogy and especially equity-based teaching rewarded equally to all other areas. So for example, rewarded equally to research. More now, amens, more amens. I'm just <laughs> so 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 I think that's really important. Now I'm not saying that we should at all saying that we should abandon research and knowledge production, and I'm not even saying that it should be rewarded the same for all faculty. But we should hold pedagogy to as similar and a, a level of esteem as we do to research. And okay, so and I have three, I do have three wishes. So this is just one. <laughs> so and and I, I have to tell you, I had many more wishes. I had to limit, you know, you said <laughs> all right. So I would instantly have a richly diverse student body across all institutions and also all the supports in place to have that diverse student body thrive, both in and out of the classroom. So I actually think that so much of our teaching woes, in addition to the problematic reward structures we have, both for faculty and for institutions, um, you know, in addition to that, part of the issue that we have is that if we look at the history of higher education, and so much is this rooted in problematic, you know, decisions in our history, um, you know, higher education institutions weren't originally designed to serve diverse student bodies, right? Mm -hmm. And so if it were the case, I think we'd have to actually wave, wave a historical wand, 
right? And go back in history and say when higher education was originally designed, it was designed to originally serve racially diverse, diverse gender, you know, diverse uh, uh, socioeconomic status. And we would need to to, to design a teaching and learning paradigm at that time that would serve those students and would continue to grow and serve those students. So that's number two. (laughs) (laughs) And, And then number three, I would also have the institutions that do the best at graduating and serving a diverse student body be the ones that have the most prestige. So I would want those institutions to be the highest ranked and have the highest resources because those are, believe it or not, those institutions, the ones that are serving a diverse student body, those are actually the ones that are typically the best at teaching. So by making these institutions hold the most prestige, I also think that that would reward and serve teaching improvement the best. You know, speaking of putting people on the spot, would you like to name some names in that regard? Because, you know, the Boyer 2030 report, which you've kindly referenced a few times, we I know the commission was hoping to do the same thing as you're describing, to highlight those institutions that for a long time uh, have been pursuing the equity excellence imperative by other names and in other ways, but have don't haven't received near the um, recognition acknowledgement for their time decades decades and decades of work uh, on this behalf and i'm thinking of i'm gonna i'm gonna start i'm gonna name some names i'm thinking of like the university of texas at el paso i'm thinking of like hbcus like howard university and clark atlanta university and morgan state university and you know I'm th- so long-standing eight, um, Hispanic-serving institutions, HBCUs, and and other institutions that where leadership has been such, or or I'm I'm not quite sure just how it works, but where uh, for for a long time now, maybe an Arizona State University, you know, and so where there's just been a real commitment to um, to this kind of work. Do, do you have any uh, favorites that you've observed over time or that's been part of your experience that you would like to call out? I, I think I think you've listed some some really good ones. And then I'll, I'll just I'll just add a couple that I think are a different kind of university than what you've just described. And and I will say, so in my I and just to name, I'm not going to reveal whether or not these were part of the institutions in my study and some good of the point. ones I'm listing. Yep. were were in the study and some were not. So just know <laughs> you're not right. you're not hearing a list from the study necessarily. Right, right. But um but but obviously I know from 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 being in the field and talking to colleagues and also what the literature base has you know so so there, there's a lot of knowledge outside you know this observational study that helps us to find these universities. But I think regional public universities don't get their due. That's one of the things that have um, that really came out in the study is that these universities that are not the flagship universities uh, in, in states, but, but typically are really focused on serving students and serving communities in really important ways. Um, UMBC, I'll lift up, I think is a really important um, uh, institution that has done incredible work on the equity excellence imperative and have has lifted up equity as a central component of excellence, that we cannot bifurcate rigor and equity, that they are in fact the same and, uh, and, 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 and mutually reinforcing. UMBC has done that in incredible and exciting ways. And then another area that you know, is is not a uh, part of URU, but I think is important to lift up is there are some re- liberal arts colleges that um, that are not necessarily the highly ranked, highly prestigious liberal arts colleges that have been doing this deeply important work around teaching and teaching improvement. Um, I'll lift up Roanoke College as an example of that in Virginia. Some of these are rural institutions that um, that really have focused on teaching and, and serving students in incredible ways. And what I think is fascinating about several of these schools is that for students, because this is not, you know, because institutions may not be highly ranked, they may not be first choice for the students, and, and they may even have they, they may even have some retention problems because these students don't know the diamond in the rough that they have, right? And so what I think is fascinating about that is that if those institutions were lifted up 
as the gold mine of teaching excellence, these students would, would, would better see what they have and would not hop to institutions with more prestige. They're actually being incredibly well-served where they are, which is really exciting. Oh, I'm with you on that. That's, that makes all the sense in the world. And URU is fairly narrowly focused, but that doesn't mean that we're not connected with all, you know, two-year institutions, our regional public partners. Uh, you know, we're part of the land-grant system, of course, and, and we know that there are just uh, so many kinds of um, uh, learning, you know, higher ed learning opportunities out there for folks, and we, we'd like to be a part of the overall organic change that's affecting all students and all faculty and classrooms. So thank you for acknowledging that. You know, if we throw Johns Hopkins in the mix, I'll give Baltimore three schools and now the people of Baltimore can be very excited about what's uh, <laughs> right in their backyard, right? Um, Absolutely. And, and we just, yeah, you know, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, Steve. Just one other thing I wanted to mention, um, which is uh, I know we're talking about the book here, but there's some pretty exciting future work that's up and coming. And uh, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has recently uh, funded a project that I'm working on with uh, 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 Milagros uh, Castillo Montoya up at UConn with Br uh, Brian Dewsbury uh, down at FIU and then uh, Brian McGowan, who's also at AU. And we're writing a policy playbook for um, improving equity-based teaching at scale. And um, and in that, we're planning to lift up exemplar institutions that that are doing the work of of improving equity based teaching at the organizational level, at the department level, at individual faculty levels. So I think you know, in terms of of calling out institutional exemplars, I'm really looking forward to be able to release that policy playbook um, that will talk about practices and policies for institutional improvement. That's coming up. Uh, that that'll be forthcoming in 2024. Fantastic. Thank you for adding that. Awesome. Um, have we missed anything you would like to address? Uh -huh. Let me think. So. I think one of the things that 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 we haven't talked about enough is that institutions that are currently teaching supportive, right? Currently teaching supportive institutions. So these are the institutions that focus on teaching and hiring, that that focus on teaching and reward structures. These are the te the, the institutions where teaching is talked about in the hallways, right? That's that's my favorite measure, right? And uh and so these institutions, I feel, um, and, and I think there are many members of URU that might fall into this category. And, and actually, the members of URU, so research universities that are also focused on teaching, could benefit so much in the kinds of institutional reward structure changes that we're talking about, right? So... So if institutions that supported teaching were more visible and could document their excellence as, as teaching institutions, it would be the Yuru institutions that are doing this that could, I think, get so much benefits in terms of enrollments, in terms of you know, marketing and otherwise. And I would love to see these institutions having a role in the movement for improving teaching excellence. And let me just say one more thing that I think is really, um, that is is little known and is talked about in the book. And Steve, I think you and I have talked about this before, but there was a survey that was conducted uh, while I was at Teachers College at Columbia University, um, uh, Pismoni uh, Levy and uh, and Palace, uh, Orrin Pismoni Levy there um, had, had conducted this survey that was a survey about perspectives on education and higher education by the public. So it was a representative sample of the public. And I had the opportunity to put on a couple of questions onto that survey. And one of the questions that I asked was, what are the factors that make the best university? I wanted to know what the public would say, right? Because we know what U.S. News thinks makes the best university, right? U.S. News thinks that that you know, reputation uh, makes the best university, and and research expenditures, and a few other things, right? Um, student incoming characteristics, right? These are the kinds of things that U.S. News measures. But what does the public think makes the best university? And and we asked 
uh, I asked, you know, with with several different kinds of options, you know, I thought maybe there would be an economic perspective on this. So maybe it would be, you know, the public would say, well, it's the it's it's the institutions that in the end have graduates with the best salaries. Right. They might say that. And actually, you know, uh, the 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 uh, the federal government has really thought from that perspective quite a bit. Um, or, or maybe they would think it is research, right, and knowledge production that's most important. Or maybe they would think contribution to the local community. Or maybe they would think, you know, the universities with the best sports teams are the best, right? Maybe. I really, I really wasn't sure what the what the public would think, but but in the end, the number one factor selected by the U.S. public, and again, this was a representative sample, and this finding held across race, across gender, across socioeconomic status and and across um, whether they had held a college degree or not. So this this holds true for the public that has been to higher ed as well as the public who has not. And what they said was the most important factor in what makes the best university is that it has excellent teachers. So teaching excellence came up as the most important factor Student learning came as the second most important factor. So if the public knew that Yuru institutions were the best research universities with the most excellent teaching, I just think that could bring so many institutional rewards for those institutions. Well, that is without a doubt the note on which we should end this conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Campbell. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to this conversation. And uh, I can't wait to to hear more from this podcast and um, to be a part of the movement that you all are generating um, uh, through this discussion. Yes. Thank you again. And thank you to our listeners of Reinventing You, a podcast of the Association for Undergraduate Research. Undergraduate Education at Research Universities, or URU. Reinventing You is available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever you get your podcast. To learn more about URU, check out us at URUERU.org. URU members can listen to an extended version of this interview at the members section of the site.